to conquer, we attempt to defeat, we attempt to get as much as we can. It's the age of the ego. This it's is Bar Solutions, Prentice Wayne Dyer. This one invisible force is in control of our lives. Day. And I believe that I was writing change your life, earlier in my change life. Change your greatness, to be obscure, reach higher level of businesses. I'm presenting to you that which is invisible to the common human awareness. I'm trying to bring you to an awareness that can transform you, that can bring you into a state. This is when we finally get to a place in our adult life when we stop saying, What's in it for me? How much can I get? How much can I accumulate? Can help not only you, but the people in your life. I do these broadcasts. I used to do a lot of talking, but I'm trying to share that this isn't a Baylin thing. This isn't a. my whole truth or my belief this is something that is everywhere and a lot of people are talking about it and have been talking about it so enjoy i'll be coming on here and giving my little bit of uh understanding and awareness what has been revealed to me as i've went through these transformation stages and um Hopefully we'll all be in a better place. Or knowing that we are in a better place. And we begin to ask the question, how may I serve? What are your quotas? And serving others becomes much more important than our own egos. Until ultimately we reach what he called the stage of the spirit, the archetype of the spirit. When we finally begin to recognize that that this is not our home. Never been. What it means in the holy books when it says you are in this world, but you are not of this world. And these four stages represent also where we can look at our own self. How am I doing going through these? To what extent do I find myself consumed with my own quotas? What's in it for me? How much can I get? And ask ourselves that question as we begin to interact and deal with other people. Being able to manifest being able to be attract into our lives what it is that we'd like to attract into our lives boils down to a formula that I'd like to share with you here this evening. And this formula is one that everyone that I know who is able to get things into their life practices this. I call it the four reallys. All right? So that what you really, 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 really want you will get. And these four really stand, each of them stands for something. And if you look at people who are good at, some people call them lucky, some people call them highly spiritual, whatever it might be, but they are good at getting what they want in their lives. And here are the four reallys. The first one says, I wish. So what you really wish for, everything that you'd like to get into your life starts with a wish. It's a thought. I wish I could get that job. I wish I could get that promotion. I wish I could lose weight. I wish I could get rid of that addiction that I have. I wish I could, whatever, it's a wish. So you have to start with a wish. The second really stands for what you desire. What you really wish and desire. And the difference between what you wish for and desire is in what I call asking. Ask and you shall receive. Ask and you shall receive. It's not empty words. Be willing to ask. When I get stuck sometimes writing, 
and I'm just not quite sure where to go or whatever, I just leave the typewriter, I leave the yellow pad that I'm writing on, I walk over to the couch and I get into a meditation and I say, I would like some help in having this become clearer as to how to express it. And it's always there. Sometimes the phone will ring. And my wife will call and she'll say, did you know that this was in the mail? And I'll say, read it to me and it'll be exactly what I needed. Sometimes it just comes in the, in the, the thing that I call an intuition or an insight, whatever it might be. The third really stands for what I intend. So now you shift away from what I wish for and ask for, and you frame it in such a way that you intend to create it. I intend to create this, whatever it might be, whether it's a healing, whether it's a, a losing of weight, whether it's getting rid of an, an addiction, whether it's creating prosperity, I intend to create it. And if you notice people who are good at manifesting, they don't mince those kinds of words. I will do it. And someone says, well, what if it doesn't work out? You say, well, then I'll just learn whatever I have to learn from it not working out. But I intend to create this in my life. There's an intention, and the intention is so powerful that you become independent of the good opinion of other people. You're not checking it out with the tribe. You're not checking it out with what everybody else out there said you should do or shouldn't do. You're saying to yourself, I intend to create it. And I often tell people, don't tell anybody else about what you want to manifest. Don't make it a big statement. Instead, keep it to yourself. And they say, why do you want to say that? I say, because the minute that you do, you invoke ego. And in quantum physics, there's a simple line that says, particles themselves are not responsible for their own creation. Another way of saying that is the way St. Paul said it. That which is seen, he said, hath not come from that which doth appear. That is the source of everything over here. It's not over here. It's in this invisibleness. And once you invoke ego, you have to defend it, you have to explain it, you have to get the tribe involved in it, and before long, you've lost the capacity to manifest. It's a spiritual journey inspiration in spirit when you're inspired in spirit the fourth really stands for passion passion that is i am absolutely passionate about it and i intend to create it with that love one of the great books that one of my teachers sent to me from ancient india written like three thousand years ago has a line in it that says, to attempt to manifest what you want without passion is like dressing up a corpse. So you take this corpse, and you put a tuxedo on it, and you dress it all up, and you put all the makeup on it, and you take it out into the world, and you say, now see what you can get for me. But basically, it's dead inside. And if it's dead inside, that is, if it lacks passion, if you lack passion, you're not going to be able to attract it into your life. So what you wish for, ask for, intend to create, and have passion about, you'll get. You'll get it. That's the good news. The bad news is that what you really, 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 really don't want, you will also get. And this is one of the most difficult things for people to understand. And when you're dealing with the tribe, and you're dealing with what is, and what, uh, what everybody else tells you is impossible, and somebody might be watching this and say, well, that's just a lot of nonsense. I mean, you can't just put your attention on something, think about it, and have it come true. It involves a whole lot of other stuff like that. You see, here's how it works. You cannot attract thin 
from I hate being fat. Because if what you think about is what expands, and what you're thinking about is hating being fat, then hating being fat is what you will continue to manifest. You act upon what you think about. You cannot attract prosperity from an inner consciousness that says, I hate being poor, I despise being poor. Because if you despise being poor, if you're angry about being poor, then being angry about being poor or despising it is what you will continue to act upon and you'll be able to say, see? Now that's, it gets worse. You cannot manifest what you want if your attention is on what is. If your attention is on what is and the circumstances of your life, that's where your thoughts are, then you will continue to create what is into your life. You've got to figure out a way to get your mental images, your energy, your attention, your higher awareness off of what is and onto what you want. And every time your thoughts are on what is, you shift it to what do I want? And it's even worse than that. You cannot manifest what you want if your attention is on what always has been. This is the way things are. You'll hear people say it to you all the time. These are the circumstances of life. Don't you understand? This is reality. Wake up. These are the way things have always been. There's always been poor people. You're one of them. That's just the way it is. And you watch that person and being poor continues to manifest into their life. If you keep your attention on what always has been, then what always has been is what you'll continue to manifest. As you think, so shall you be. These aren't empty words, folks. This is reality. And the worst and ugliest of all is this. You cannot manifest what you want into your life, no matter what it is, if your attention is on what they want for you. Or what they expect for you. Or what they tell you are your limitations or what you can do. Because if your thoughts are on what they want, you cannot put your attention on what you want. What they want will continue to manifest. And you might be in a tribe that always turns left. And all you want to do is make a right turn. And you go to all the tribal elders and you say, look, I just want to make one right turn. And they say, wait a minute. In our tribe, we only turn left. We've always turned left. That's the way this tribe has always been. And so they will have an emergency meeting. And they will convene all the elders to get you to come to your senses. Jackson Brown is, well, I think, one of the great poets on our, on our planet. Great singer. He has a song called For a Dancer. In there, there are words to this effect. He says, just do the steps that you've been shown by everyone you've ever known until the dance becomes your very own. Which is what most of us are doing. We're doing the steps that we've been shown by everyone we've ever known, and the dance has become our very own. And later on in the song, he says something to the effect of, into a dancer you have grown from the seeds someone else has thrown. Go on ahead and throw some seeds of your own somewhere between the time you arrive and the time you go home. And then the kicker, it always gets to me when I listen to this song. He said, because in the end, there is one dance you'll do alone. And it's like letting go of this tendency to be a dancer. 
to be doing the steps that we've been shown by everyone we've ever known and then it becomes our own and then we pass it on and we pass it on to break that chain we have to shift our attention off of what we don't want and onto what we do want and this goes for everything i was at a doing a book tour up in chicago i get off the airplane and a woman picks me up and she's got a doozy of a cold like you know, Snoopy's, as my kids call it, coming out of her nose, onto her dress. I mean, it was, and I was in, a, in this little Honda with her for two days. And she, so I said to her something to the effect, I can't remember what it was, I, I know she didn't like it, but I said something to the effect of, oh, it's been 20 years since I've had a cold like that. And she said, oh, that's just what I needed to hear. It's people like you who go around telling us, normal, mortal human beings, that when we have a cold, we should be feeling guilty. She said, I don't appreciate that at all. She said, colds are just things that happen to us. I said, well, I understand that. I said, but I just don't think like you. She said, well, what do you think? I said, well, tell me what you think. You're the one with the cold. She said, well, I think colds are viruses and that they're in the air. And they're going to land on us every once in a while. And when they do, we shouldn't be feeling guilty about it and feeling bad about it, and people you like you writing books about it to make us feel worse. I said, look, we're on the same page here. I said, I believe just like you. I think that colds are in the air, and that they're viruses, and that they land on us. She said, well, how come you don't get a cold? Then? I said, because when they land on me, I talk to them. She said, you talk to viruses? I said, of course. She said, well, what do you say? Well, I say to her, look, you've landed on the wrong immune system. I'm not going to talk about you to anyone. I'm not going to complain about you. I'm not going to give you any attention. And you have no room to flourish on this immune system. You're just not going to do your work here. But there's a lady in Chicago <laughs> who's waiting for you. Now, you laugh and you think that that's silly, but I'm telling you that when you keep your attention on what you don't want, what you don't want is what will keep manifesting into your life. Addictions have been described as never getting enough of what you don't want or what you despise. So we keep our attention on what we don't want and what we don't want is what we keep seeking after and then we despise it. When we put our attention on what we do want, when we shift to a place called unconditional love and begin to view it as something that I don't have to be dependent upon, you can shift right out of it. The currency for attracting what we want into our lives is our thoughts. As you think, so shall you be. Begin to place them on what it is that you want, and you'll start seeing it shift over and over again. And people who are terrific at getting what they want, you start getting inside of their head and say, what do you think like? What it, how are you organized in here? And you know what they always say? I never, ever allow my thoughts on anything that I don't want. And no matter who out there is saying, yes, but you can't do this, yes, but you can't do that, I never allow that kind of energy. I don't, I shift away from that energy instantly. That's what separates great masters from ordinary human awareness. I have been talking during this program about a consciousness, an awareness, a level of functioning or living or thinking which involves something that I call spirituality. It doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't restricted in any religious way. It is a divine intelligence, an organizing intelligence that is everywhere at once. Some people call it God. 
Some people call it soul. Some call it spirit. Back in the times of slavery, there was a young man, his name was John Newton. He was 23 years old. And he had what is called a, in Japanese it's called, excuse my Japanese, but it's called satori. I love to say that. Satori, S-A-T-O-R-I. And it means instant awakening. The idea that you can create something in your life now. In Zen they have a proverb that says, when the student is ready, the teachers will appear. So it's just being ready. And so you don't have to go through this long, involved process to get to enlightenment where you get it five minutes before you die. Instead, you can have it when you are ready. The Native Americans, they have a word called natohi in the Aleut Indians. Natohi. And it means great seeing. Like, I don't see, I don't see, I don't see, and boom, there it is. I see. And it's like, it's like in a dream when you just have this awakening, this light goes off, and you just know. It's an in intuition, if you will. Intuition has been described as, you know, if prayer is you talking to God, then intuition is God talking to you. Mm. It's like hearing that voice, and you know it. And John, I call it revelations Newton, the 23-year-old sea captain, had a, uh, a ship full of uh, human cargo that he was bringing from the west coast of Africa to the New World as slaves. And he had this satori, this awakening. And in this moment of awakening, he realized that what he was doing was horrible and defenseless in terms of his own inner sense of morality. And he wrote down on the envelope the words to a song called, he called it Grace. I once was lost, and now I'm found. And it was grace that taught my heart to feel. It was grace that brought me home. He shifted away from his material world and his, his being a warrior to being a spiritual being in an instant, which is available to every single one of us. There have been things that uh, have been showing up in my life, and principles for me to write about, and uh, things for me to tell you and share with you that have, um, um, that have really surprised me. And I've always lived by the principle of Talopa, the 10th century Sufi master, who said to have a mind that is open to everything and attached nowhere, attached to nothing. And my wife and I always had this um, attitude in, in bringing up our children that um, keep an open mind. And anything that um, you immediately reject, get your ego out of that. And just open yourself to the words of Jesus in the New Testament when he said, with God, all things are possible. And I always ask my audience, uh, what does that leave out? What does all things are possible leave out? And obviously the answer is nothing. In the book that I wrote um, for the film, The Shift, it is also called The Shift, um, it has four chapters. From ambition to meaning, moving our lives away from our egos and into a place of, of meaning, what Serena was up here speaking about. It, it's a sense of feeling that you're making a difference in the world. And towards the end of that book, I quoted from uh, a man named Joel Goldsmith, who wrote The Infinite Way and in parentheses in eternity. And,
we actually had friends on Maui, a friend on Maui named Alexandra, who was in her 90s. And in her late 80s, she would go out kayaking every day. <laughs> and she actually dated Joe Goldsmith back in the 1950s when he lived on Hawaii. He's been a very much of a hero to me. And then from his book, Parentheses in Eternity, which is what your life is, a parentheses in eternity, he said these words. He said, then there are those who reach a stage in which they realize the futility of this constant striving and struggling for the things that perish, things which, after they are obtained, prove to be shadows. It is at this stage that some persons turn from this seeking for things in the outer realm to a seeking for them from God. And that has been probably the major shift in my life, taking the focus in my life off of um, the things, the accomplishments, the acquisitions, reputation, ownership, which we begin to identify ourselves as, and to begin to recognize that uh, Pierre Tellyard, the great French priest who was excommunicated from the Catholic Church for his outrageous ideas in 1918, um, he said, you're not here as a human being having a spiritual experience, that it's the other way around. You've all heard it that we are all infinite spiritual beings having a temporary human experience and beginning to live our life from this spiritual place, this place of spirit where we recognize and identify ourselves not on the basis of what the ego says, which is on the basis of what we have and what we accomplish, what we own and what others think of us, not based on our belief in our separation from each other, and most egregiously, not based upon our belief in our separation from God. A shift, if you will, to an awareness of, uh, of our own divinity. And from that place, what is possible for all of us. So I'm going to recite a poem here from a... Um, a great poet, his name was Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He, um, he wrote a poem called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And he also wrote one that wasn't that well known. I put it in a book of mine years ago called Real Magic. I started it with this. And I'd like you to, as I give these words, I, I'd, I'd like you to think about what the poet is asking and whether or not you believe in your heart or know in your heart that what I'm, what the poet is saying is possible for you. Or whether you think it's just the fancy kind of uh, fanciful uh, meanderings and dreamings of, a, uh, of an idealist. Ask yourself, is this possible? He said, what if you slept? And what if in your sleep you dreamed? And what if in your dream you went to heaven and there picked a strange and wonderful flower? And what if 
when you awoke, you held that flower in your hand. Ah, what then? He concludes his poem. Ah, what then? I wonder if you think such a thing is, um, is really a possibility. That you can go into a state in which there is no form, no beginnings, no ends, no boundaries, no limits, and bring from that invisible place something that has substance, that has boundaries, that has form, that you can hold, that you can smell. And then ask yourself if that's a possibility. I wonder how many of you think yes, and how many of you think no. I, I'm not going to ask, but um, the fact is that uh, this room has, it looks like 2,500 or so people in the room tonight. Um, every single one of you are an example of what that poet just described. Every single one of you came from a formless place and are now form. All of you. Every flower that you look at began in a seed, and the seed began in something that is invisible. There's a little girl here tonight. Camille, where's Camille? Six years old or so, seven years old. I was uh, swimming with her a little while ago, and she showed me her teeth. She said, uh, I lost two of my teeth. And look, there's two, two teeth coming underneath it, and she was all excited about that. And um, I said to her mom and my daughter Summer, who was here, <laughs> um, just imagine that in that tiny little infinite, infinitesimally small little speck that built into that was what she's going through right now. What is there to do? There's nothing for us to, we, can, we can't make a change. In that tiny, little, invisible speck, everything that you needed for this physical journey was handed for you. And you don't believe in miracles? <laughs> and the great Tao, many of you know I lived uh, the Tao for a year, the year I turned 65 and wrote a book on it. A book that I always tell people, carry it with you wherever you go. Some call it the wisest book ever written. And uh, I lived the principles of that little book. And I encourage people to, uh, to just stick it in your new purse. <laughs> the ones that are made out of plastic recycled water bottle. Is that all right? And, um, but just carry it with you because you don't even really need to uh, open it because the energy from what's in here will come to you. I had a great teacher in India used to say he wrote a, uh, a, a collection of his writings was called I Am That by uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. And he used to say to his devotees, you don't have to read it, just carry it with you. And I heard that I was in my early 40s. 
when I heard that, and I just thought, this is just another one of those crazy guys <laughs> over there in India giving us advice, and I, I just didn't think that it would be possible to get. But now I've really come to an awareness that uh, energy is in everything, and that um, just holding this book, literally, you could, you could <clears throat> muscle test this, kinesiology, and um, put this thing next to your heart, and you will be stronger with it than you were without it. Just try it. Just carry it with you. Let me see, who would like a copy of this? Oh, that hand right there, the first hand up. Yeah, you. Yep. No, next to you. Yeah, stand up. Would you like to carry this with you? Wherever you go, there you are. God bless you. The Tao Te Ching. It's only a few dollars. It's worth having. One of the great lines in the Tao is what I'm speaking about here at these opening lines, is that um, it says that none of you are doing anything. You're all just being done. And when you look at your physical body, there's a recognition that this is absolutely true. You know? I mean, what can you do to change it? Mm-hmm. Things are drooping, folks. <laughs> you can fix them up if you want to, but uh, the inevitable is there. And the hair, well, for some of you it turns gray, and for some of you it just turns. It just goes somewhere else. <laughs> And um, you begin to see there's also a great line in the book because my son, who's sitting in the front row, uh, Sands, who graduates uh, in a couple of weeks and is going to start supporting me, I'm so happy about that. Because <laughs> um, I often have quoted Lao Tzu, and he has often said, the Tao, God, divine mind, the Tao does nothing. And it leaves nothing undone. It's all perfect. So I say to him when, over the summer, over in Maui, I said, Sans, come on, do something. You got to do it. Let's go. We got to do something. He looked up and he said, I do nothing. <laughs> and I leave nothing undone. <laughs> so this stuff can come back at you. <laughs> it's his favorite line, though. He's a Taoist philosopher. So the great saint, uh, Swami Muktananda, um, was asked the question, what is real? And his response is really worth you hearing. And something for you to really think about, because the, the strange place that, I think it's weird, it's just, um, it's just so magical, but it's still, it's just, it's hard for us to wrap our arms around this idea that all things are possible. This, this, this awareness that, um, that about what is real. And Muktananda said, that is real, which never changes. So what part of your physical life meets that definition? We are all in these uh, bodies that are changing every second. Therefore, by that definition, they're not real. So you go back and um, look at how many bodies you've been in since you showed up here. Mm. You were in a body about this big that weighed somewhere between five and 10 pounds. And that was you. And you were in a little toddler body about this tall. 
he certainly if someone said is that you you would have said yeah that's me and then you're in a thirteen year twelve year old body which is one of these i have six daughters and they have a stance you know when they're about thirteen and they go like it's funny um if you say this physical body is you which one is you the big one that was you or the skinny one that was you when you were nine was that you when you were eleven was that you what is trying to think and get you to understand is that you are not the physical nature because that physical nature changes You're not the response to that physical nature to the impacts of the environment. Sadness, gladness, happiness. You're not those things. You're the observer of those things. And um, another con that it has is, okay, show me where in the body is you. Are you in the hand? Are you in the eye? And I took it further when I was trying to do this teaching, um, I asked where they are in the body and they said, I'm here. I say, but if I took away your arm, would you still be there? And they go, yeah. I said, if I took away your other arm, would you still be there? And they said, yeah. I take away your legs. Would you still be there? And they said, yeah. I won't be happy, though. But I said, if I take away your sight, would you still be there? And they said, yeah. I said, so where are you in this? What part of this is you? And they always, that gets them to thinking. Then I say, Who's looking at you when you're looking at the mirror? And they're like, what do you mean? Well, you have this object that you're saying that's you, that you put in front of a mirror, and both of them are reflecting on each other. Who's the one looking at that? And then they smile. And their leg goes up and down, and they roll their eyes and look at you like... You ought to try to get a life someplace. <laughs> you were in one of those bodies, teenage body, and you thought that was real. That's when you get the great learnings. One of my daughters, Serena, said to me one time when I raised my voice and asked her to hurry up and get moving, come on. She looked at I wonder what all those people would think of Mr. Positive if they could see him here this morning. She turned to her sister and said, uh, would you buy a book from someone who yells at his 11-year-old daughter? I, I'd sneak out of the room and try to... Best line I ever heard from any of my children ever, and I follow them around with a pad of paper. I have a roommate that does that. material. was from my daughter Summer. Like, who wants to listen to you? you she was 13, and her sister was 11, sitting at the breakfast table, and... All of a sudden, about 6.30 in the morning, and 
Summer looked at Serena and said, well, if you didn't have any feet, would you wear shoes? Serena at that time, you know, doesn't go away. Um, could hardly stand anybody talking to her at six o'clock in the morning. And said, that's the most ridiculous thing. I am not angry. I'm expressing anger. And I usually express it after a feeling of wrongness, a feeling of scarcity, a feeling of nervousness. Is when I express these things. But I'm expressing them. I'm not making them me. Never heard you say, don't even talk to me. Why are you, why are you, just don't even talk to me. Close your mouth. Why are you talking to me? That's so stupid. When you've got to have any feet, would I wear shoes? Of course not. <laughs> Sid, you're always yelling at me. Even if I'm talking like this and I say something that she feels is attacking her, she says I'm yelling at her. I'm stating a point on something that I'm in touch with. And I'm trying to communicate with you what's going on with me. I don't think they want to hear that. I'm going to look at said, don't get mad at me. I just wonder why you're wearing that bra. That's, uh... So... <laughs> I, I, you were in one of those bodies. <laughs> I was in a 20-year-old body, and, um... I saw a picture on the PBS show, and I was doing a little bit of this, and the pictures of me at various stages of my life were going by, and the film was, uh, uh, the camera was looking at this picture, and it stopped on a picture of me when I was about 20 years old, and I'm 70, that was 51 years ago, and um, there's not one cell of that body left on this planet. <laughs> I really thought it was real. And when you were in your 20-year-old body, you thought it was real, didn't you? I mean, it's just like, you'd look at it, you say, of course it's real. And now you look back at it and say, if it was real, where is it? And where did it go? <clears throat> Emily Dickinson, another great poet, one of my very favorite poets from Massachusetts, would, um, would give talks back in the 19th century. And she would pick up a handful of of dirt and she would say just let this in this quiet dust was gentlemen and ladies and lads and girls was laughter and ability and sighing and frocks and curls this passive place a summer's nimble mansion where bloom and bees fulfilled their oriental circuit then ceased like these that's who you are if you believe that you're your body just quiet us going to fulfill its circuit and cease and we all know that we're something much more than that but we haven't been raised to believe that. So my talk tonight
is really about understanding there is a component of us that is beyond the physical, meta, beyond the physical, metaphysical, um, beyond form, trans, over, past, higher than form, transformed. And this, um, this part of who we are has infinite possibilities and can do anything, can heal anything, can manifest anything, can attract into our lives the right people. And you get a sense after a while that, um, that this invisibleness that is who we are is as, as you begin to elevate your awareness and move to a higher level and, and this is basically the essence of it it's that <clears throat> we were all conceived and born into a world and a culture in which we were raised to be ordinary and ordinary isn't so bad. I'm not here to put down ordinary and average and fitting in and all the things that ordinary uh, comprises. It's just not what I want for me. And I got the mic tonight. So, and ordinary really means, um, it means fitting in. It means getting along. It means becoming a good citizen. It means um, filling out the forms. It means paying your taxes. It means having your children and providing for them and taking care of them and uh, going to work, going to school and getting good grades, and graduating and your family and doing all of this all of this, these ordinary things, and then getting to the uh, later stages in your life where you become a grandparent, and then you live your life through your grandchildren, and then you die. And, uh, and this isn't an, an indictment of that. It's, um, it's, for me, an awareness that if I put my hands here about at my waist, I am speaking about ordinary consciousness. And where I would like to take you tonight, where, where I have been taken in my life, particularly in the last year or so, and particularly in the last decade. It's, it's uh, you know, This form for some 
years. I've been in the hospital more times in the last four years than I ever have in my life. I believe that um, to a psychiatrist, they refuse to identify any, to get any diagnosis that would um, make them appear or identify any issues or problems, and they just are constantly directing. Uh, I had met a friend of them, and they, like, doesn't take responsibility and will never admit anything. It doesn't matter if I take proof or I take a picture and give complete evidence, I'm still to blame. And it's not that I'm doing it to attack or, or I'm just trying to communicate. And every time I go to talk or I want to communicate, I don't feel like talking right now. I don't want to talk. So that means that they don't want to hear me. They don't want to know. They just want to be heard. They just want to have their sovereignty. And I don't know. I do know, but...
infinite. And what is infinite? What does it mean when something is infinite? It means that it is always expanding, right? It doesn't stop any place. It is always growing. It's like the universe. It's just infinite. What do you think's at the end of the universe? Just try to imagine a finite universe. And we come up with, well, what would be at the end of it? <laughs> and what we think is at the end of it is what? What is there, a wall? If there's a wall at the end of the universe, the poet would ask, what's on the other side? <laughs> and where does that end? So this getting in touch with this infinite part of ourselves is really the part of us that says, there was a song that was popular when my mother was a young woman. It was called, Don't Fence Me In. <laughs> Oh, give me land, lots of land, and the starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Remember that song? All the old folks singing. My daughter's looking at me. What is he going to do now? It's going to embarrass me. <laughs> we don't want to be fenced in. Now, before I had any children, I had eight theories about how to raise children. I even wrote about them. Now we have eight children, I have no theories. <laughs> but the one thing I know about raising children is this, that nobody likes being told what to do. Right, Sage? <laughs> I was telling the story of uh, you, honey, um, on Mother's Day. One year at a restaurant where we were all there, my mother, Marcy's mom and dad, and we were all there. And, and um, Sage is, um, in a lot of ways, like me, the, the, what I call the, I tell this story at every talk, so I might as well hear it. That's the scurvy elephant. When I was in the foster home back in Mount Clemens, when I was about six or seven years old, I came home from school, and Mrs. Scarf, who ran this home, had this home that a bunch of us lived. And I came home and I asked her, what's a scurvy elephant? And she said, a what? And she said, a scurvy elephant. I mean, I said, and she said, well, where did you hear that? I said, well, I heard Mrs. Poole, who was my third grade teacher, talking to the principal. And she said that uh, Wayne Dyer was in her classroom and that he was a scurvy elephant. So she got on the phone, called the principal, and the principal said, oh, no. And she said, that's Wayne. He gets everything mixed up. She didn't say that he was a scurvy elephant in her classroom. She said that he was a disturbing element <laughs> in her classroom. <laughs> and I always love to say that. So a scurvy elephant is, uh, and my teacher, Abraham Maslow, which does always say to us, um, you know, the, the number one marker of self-actualizing people is their, uh, their independence of the good opinion of other people. They're just not interested in being told what to do. I watched on the, um, on my iPad, which I just got, um, and it, um, it had a, uh, a commencement address by uh, Steve Jobs at Stanford University. It was 15 minutes, and I just sat there, and before I meditated, I listen to what he had to say, this immensely scurvy elephant who really, I mean, just passed away a few weeks ago, and 
Um, you know, many of his biographers now saying that he's up there with uh, Thomas Edison and Benjamin Franklin and uh, Alexander Graham Bell, people like that. I mean, he really changed who we are as a people and how we communicate with each other. And his advice to the whole graduating class at Stanford was, don't live somebody else's dharma. Don't listen to that inner calling. And whatever it calls you to do, listen to it. And don't pay attention to anybody telling you what's possible or what's not possible, or just fight for it. Sage was at Mother's Day, and I don't even remember what it was that she wanted to wear or didn't want to wear, but um, it had something to do with dresses and skirts and slacks. And I remember that Mother's Day walking in the parking lot with Sage for 45 minutes or so, talking to her about... Um, I know exactly how you feel and how you think. I said, but there's a lot of people who think that you should maybe wear something nice. It's Mother's Day and it's a restaurant. I said, but uh, you don't have to go back in there. We'll go home and get something afterwards if you want. And uh, she just gave me that, I don't want to do this. And why should I be told what to wear? And I understood that. I understood it very strong. And she's still doing that. <laughs> But it also serves people very, very well. This idea that um, I'm going to listen to that voice. And we all have it. And when we have this voice, and this voice has passion associated with it, that is when you feel a strong passion towards what it is that you want to become, what you want to create, the kind of person that you intend to, to be, when you have that within you, um, it doesn't make any difference whether anybody else understands it or gets along with it. You don't even try to talk to anybody else about it. You just listen to it and you become a disturbing element. You become a scurvy elephant in the world. And, and it's the only way you'll ever feel fulfilled. You won't get it by, by fitting in. So in order to, you have to listen to your soul. And your soul is that invisibleness. And your soul is not finite. Therefore, everything up to here is finite. Everything that I spoke about, filling out the forms, fitting in, being a good citizen, doing all the right things, all these things, which I applaud, which are all fine, but they only take you... Um, you end up living a half-lived life. Herman Melville... I spoke about him this morning when I spoke to the writer's group here. I mean, his writing was so profound and so beautiful, and he, uh, he had this one line from Moby Dick, which is really not the story about a man chasing a whale. It's the story of um, a person who has an obsession, and that whale is a symbol of, uh, I must achieve it. I read a really great book this summer. Every one of my kids have read it. It's called Unbroken by Laura Hiller Purebrand. And um, I recommend that you read it. And wherever this is going around the world, get a copy of it. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, who um, survived on a raft across the ocean and was taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp and on and on and on and survived against all odds. 
and then at the end was able to go back and forgive. I mean, it's just a powerful, beautiful, spiritual experience. And, um, <clears throat> and Ahab was, uh, was pursuing his own uh, inner voice that just couldn't be stilled. And this is how Melville spoke. Because I live on an island in the middle of the Pacific, Maui, where I invite you to come in January to listen to the whales. Go on a whale watch with me, and if you like what I'm speaking about here tonight, we do three, two or three days on it in January. <clears throat> Here's Melville. He said, for as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all of the horrors of the half-lived life. The half-lived life is the life that gets you to ordinary, to filling out the forms and then stopping. The self-actualized life starts at ordinary <clears throat> and listens to its soul, which you can't find, but you know is there. And there are some that doubt that it's there. I had a friend who's a neurosurgeon over in Maui, and he was saying, you know, you talk about this soul thing a lot. He said, I've poked around in a lot of human brains, and I've never seen a soul or anything resembling a soul. <laughs> And I asked him, I said, Chuck, I said, um, while you're in there poking around, have you ever seen a thought? <laughs> well, no, of course not. I said, do you think there are thoughts? <laughs> that such a thing as a thought exists? You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't. The fact is that virtually everything that exists is metaphysical, beyond the physical very limited our physical world and it's not even real by Muktananda standards because it's always changing the body that you came into this room with <coughs> will be a different you'll leave in a different body there's something called you that just keeps occupying more and more and more new bodies until ultimately it just sheds it all together the great Irish poet William Butler Yeats said, um, an aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. What an image. Unless soul claps its hands and sings and louder sings for every tatter in its mortal dress. We're just tattered coats on a stick, unless we have a soul. And when we have a soul, the soul says, don't fence me in. The soul says, don't tell me what to be. Don't tell me what I can't do.